Hello, and welcome to Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. This is a podcast about play in higher education. And of course, when I talk about play, I don't necessarily mean playing a board game or coloring or building something, although it could include all of those activities. What I'm talking about is that element of curiosity, that thing that pushes us to ask, huh, I wonder what would happen if, and then explore from there. Play can happen in a number of ways. And in this podcast, I argue that play is what separates good professors from great professors. This is episode two, turning group work into teamwork. I'm aware that there's something sort of purposefully provocative about this title because it implies a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not actually going to be able to deliver in one podcast episode. And that is that it implies that if you just listen for a few minutes, you'll become some sort of like group work wizard and your students will adore every opportunity to be a part of a group. And I just, that's not even remotely like in a fantasy world possible. But I chose this title because I wanted to think about the sort of dichotomy between what we think of as group work and what we think of when we hear the word teamwork. The truth of the matter is, is that no one, not even the most extroverted student, enjoys group work. And yet, every single day, even the most introverted people play together. So I want to look at what is the disconnect between this idea of it's fun to play together, but it's not fun to be in a group together. And then take that idea and run with it as it applies to how we might create an environment that is more playful in our approach to groups. What I'm about to say may shock you, but students don't like group work. Gasp. Of course, this is unsurprising. Uh, There was a 2009 article by David Glenn in the Chronicle of Higher Education where a group of students got together at a plenary session of the Teaching Professor Conference in 2009 simply to voice their complaints about group work. So we had students from all different universities and they had concerns and complaints that you have no doubt not only heard before, but if you were ever a student yourself in group work, probably voiced yourself. According to this article, quote, Their central complaint was the classic one. In group assignments, it's inevitable that a number of the team will shirk, end quote. And of course, the students went further and said, you know, part of the problem is, is that group work is often not graded individually, and that creates a lot of tension and conflict as one person sort of does everything and another student doesn't do anything. But some students had more astute observations about why they felt group work failed that went beyond just simply a grade. And that was that they felt that group work oftentimes created what they described as a Frankenstein effect. This idea that the final product of the group work was actually less than the sum of their parts, right? So imagine that paper that's been written by a group where there's no transitions. One section's really fantastic. Another section is going off on a tangent. A third section seems to be offering a lit review that was already covered in a previous section, right? We've all sort of seen that Frankenstein effect 
Um, and students are aware of that. And they're aware that it's not just that they don't like the experience of producing group work. It's that they don't actually like the product that ends up being produced oftentimes in group work. J. Richard Hackman, who's the Edgar Pierce Professor of Social and Organizational Psychology at Harvard University, in 2008, in an issue of the Harvard Business Review, he was interviewed and discussed at length why teams don't work. And he said, and this is a quote, I have no question that when you have a team, the possibility exists that it will generate magic, producing something extraordinary, a collective creation of previously unimagined quality or beauty, but don't count on it, end quote. And he goes on to say that research consistently shows that teams underperform despite the extra resources that they have available to them. And he gives several reasons for this, including coordination of the group, as well as motivation of the people in the group. But he says that there is a way in which groups can succeed, that groups need team boundaries. Who's a part of the group? Who's doing what? They need compelling direction. They need someone to take a position of leadership and to say, here's how we're doing it. Here's when we're doing it. Here's why we're doing it. And every team, and this is really intriguing and, and worth exploring further as we set up our own group projects, because I'm not saying group projects are bad. I'm just saying they're flawed as they currently exist. Every team needs a deviant, somebody who will challenge what is being produced, who will challenge the direction that things are headed in, whose goal is to encourage through productive criticism a better path or plan. So he says, those are the things that groups need. Here are some of the things we need to keep in mind if we are going to allow groups to be successful. And that is we have to overcome certain common fallacies. One of them is that groups that work together harmoniously are going to be more productive, are going to produce better material than groups who are not. And he says that if you look at any orchestra during the rehearsal practices, it's messy and things are out of sync. But that doesn't mean that the finished product, that you know, beautiful symphony, can't be just as great. Right? So he says that a group doesn't have to be perfectly aligned in order to create great things. He says another common fallacy is that bigger teams are better than smaller ones. I know this is something I always think about very carefully. How many students is too many? What's that tipping point? And there's all of these sort of like magical numbers that are articulated. Don't have groups more than six. Be sure that you have a group of three. What he's getting at is that the answer is not always to just throw more students into the mix. So we have to be careful about the crafting of things. And finally, he says that there's this myth that the longer a group works together, the more they are going to become familiar with one another and the more they're going to become forgiving of each other's sins. And that, that means we need to constantly be changing groups up. Again, he said that's not necessarily the case because, yes, you're going to be aware of each other's sort of problem areas, but that actually may be a, an advantage as you learn to work around that, as you learn to work with what you know. So he says, okay, groups are not going to work 90% of the time, but, but if they're going to, this is what they have to have. They have to be real. They have to know who they are, know who's a part of their group, know what's involved. They have to have compelling direction. They need enabling structures 
and they need a supportive organization. These are critical if a group or a team wants to even have the faintest hope to produce something meaningful. And then he says the last thing that they need is that teams need expert coaching. What I love about the things he says that teams need, that groups need in order to be successful, is that all of these terms and concepts make absolute transparent sense to us and we employ them all the time in terms of play. We have coaches often in games. We have a supportive structure. We have a compelling direction in which to head from point A to point B, right? All of those things we sort of innately do when we're playing. And he's saying that these things need to happen in groups as well if they're going to be successful. At this point, you may be wondering whether or not the solution to turning group work into teamwork is to have teams of one, right? Like to just disband group work altogether. I actually think though that group work has so much potential because it has the power to do all of these amazing things that just cannot be done with one single person. But we do have to acknowledge that there are some reasons that professors sometimes assign group work that are not so good, right? Sometimes some professors might assign group work so that they have less to grade. And students usually know that, right? They can feel that they, or at least they assume that because we don't explain to them that it has nothing to do with the grading load and has everything else to do with what we're actually trying to accomplish. Another bad reason unto itself is if you just sort of say the whole like, they need this skill in the quote, real world, right? They need to know how to work with a group in the real world. There's some truth to that, but in the quote, real world, they're probably going to be working with someone that they have time to work with them, shared time between nine and five, right? Their business day. They are in a space next to them for large periods of time. So although maybe being part of a group is a skill set they need to transfer, being part of a student group where students are working multiple jobs, working 17 or 18 hours of classes every day and are, you know, coming from all different places, um, that is not necessarily a skill set that they need to know for the future. But again, I really think that groups can be an amazing activity and approach to playing in the classroom for lots of reasons. One, because there is truly and legitimately a power of the collective mind. There is something that can be accomplished when you have multiple people with different backgrounds, with different ways of approaching the world working together that just cannot be replicated with just one person. There are, quite honestly, certain projects that require multiple hands or minds to compose. It is difficult to create and perform a symphony with just one person, right? There are just some things that we need multiple people to contribute to create this masterpiece. And it does teach valuable skills. It teaches valuable skills about interpersonal relationships, right? Again, maybe not working with other students. I'm not sure that's a skill that's really transferable, but learning how to negotiate with someone that is too controlling or someone that is not quite willing to put in their farthest effort. The last reason though, that I really believe in group work is because we play together. We do it all the time. We play together and we enjoy it. So there has to be a way in which group work 
can be used as a way to play in the classroom. There are a number of ways that we play together. We play co-op games like video games and board games. We have team-based activities, which can be anything from board games to card games to escape rooms, where everyone has to work together in order to figure out a solution. Most sports are played together, especially, of course, team sports. And then independent of like games themselves, we play all the time together. Book clubs, writing groups, parties, those are about playing together. So what can we do in order to create an environment in and out of the classroom that mimics and replicates the joy that we have in playing together when it comes to the things that we're doing for our group work in the classroom. So how do we take the yuck of group work and transform it into something that maybe is not the most exciting thing students will ever do, but is something that they can get behind because they see the benefit, they see the play that is happening in this group work. I'm going to argue that the solution involves thinking very carefully about five different P words. Planning, patronage, players, practice, and purpose. So in this episode, I'm actually going to only focus on the first three, planning, patronage, and players, because I think that there's enough to explore with those three to cover the length of this particular episode. And because practice and purpose, I think, are two ideas that that have some very concrete ways that they can be executed that need some further attention to kind of think about the science of learning. So we'll save those two practice and purpose for episode three, which is very uncreatively entitled Turning Group Work into Teamwork, part two. But for now, let's focus on the three P's that we're going to look at today, which again are planning, patronage, and players. Planning. So I'm a little intense when it comes to throwing parties. I like for there to be games. I like for there to be like a carefully crafted playlist of music. I oftentimes need there to be like food that fits a theme. And I realize that's really intense. And I realize that may mean that you never want to come to one of my parties. But the reason I do all of that is because I feel like the best parties I've been to have had some structure, have had some planning that has gone into them. And even though there's also a lot of room for improvisation and a lot of room to develop and explore as the night goes on, right? The, the more you can sort of offer a structure, the more people can embrace that structure and then, and then find where to play within there. Again, you may have, and you probably have a completely different philosophy of parties than I do, and that's a hundred percent okay. But I want to argue that planning is actually a really important part of play. We do it from when we craft teams to when we decide where we're going to go to meet. Um, we do it in everything that, that involves play. There's some planning that happens, even if it's just, Hey, you want to go over to that field and then wrestle right? Like there's still some sort of vague planning happening. I would even go so far as to say that one of the differences between something that is playful and something that's more like hostile or attacking is the planning process. If I were to just sort of like randomly come up to you and tackle you, 
that's an attack because there was no planning. There was no preparation on your part. It was just me like letting loose. However, if I were to say, hey, let's get together at this time in this location. Don't forget to bring your gear and then I'm going to tackle you. That can become play. And so there's something about this concept of planning that I think has to do with consent and at least awareness, right? That here's what you're going to get into. Here are the details that you can make a decision about, you know, this is a type of play I'm willing to get involved in because I know what's happening. Well, we need to think about planning our group activities and our group work in a way that sort of goes well beyond most of our normal activities that we assign and that we complete in and out of the classroom with our students. That means we need to build our projects into our course. And I don't just mean build it into the syllabus or build it into the number of points that a student can earn to succeed. I mean, it has to actually be built into the course itself. This is gonna mean things like giving the groups five minutes to talk and to figure out their next step. Or it might mean discussing as a class, how are you going to look at X element, compare with your groups, and then we'll report out. It could mean building in conference times where groups are required to meet with you outside of class or during class time and share with you their thoughts, right? But a truly effective group, one that is going to feel comfortable playing, has to know that there is a plan in place. One of the reasons that this is important is because students resist learning, engaging in activities, participating in a course when they have bad experiences, bad prior experiences regarding that type of experience, that type of learning experiment, that type of, type of activity. In other words, the moment we start to think about assigning group work, we need to know that our students are going to, even the best of them, actively start resisting. And so the more we can do to build a plan, to show them that plan, to make them understand how everything fits together, the less resistance there will be. The subject of student resistance um, and why students resist learning is really interesting and certainly worthy of its own podcast episode. But if you would like more information about it now, I would recommend the book, Why Students Resist Learning, A Practical Model for Understanding and Helping Students. It's an edited collection um, and the last names of the editors are Tolman, T-O-L-M-A-N, and Kremling, K-R-E-M-L-I-N-G. Going back to planning though, this means a whole variety of different things that you could consider and that you should think about implementing. This means breaking down the project into manageable milestones. This means possibly engaging in an understanding by design where we say, here is the end goal. Okay, now I need to work backward. How am I going to achieve these certain learning outcomes with this particular group? It also means thinking about content and form. So you know you want your students to work on a group project. That's the form. But what's the content? What are you wanting them to accomplish? Whatever that is, understanding diversity, might make the form of the group look different. So that instead of understanding diversity, write a five-page paper, because that's what I have all my groups do, maybe it's understand diversity. So go out and talk to different people and compile a report. Or maybe you teach diversity by purposely crafting groups that are themselves diverse and then make them work on finding a common way to approach a problem 
or task despite and more importantly because of their diversity. In other words, don't just think about having that sort of traditional end product, you know, a paper, a presentation, a video. Think about ways that you can make it so that the content, the, the information that you want them to learn is being replicated not only in the completed product, but in the process, in that form of them working together. It sounds very similar, but it is this sort of understanding that if we're going to have group work that feels meaningful, right? If we're going to have play involved in this, where they are curious and want to know more, we have to make sure that there's a connection between what we're asking them to do and how we're putting them into groups and how we're asking them to convey that information. You get a call! You get a call! You get a call! Patronage. Everybody gets a call! Everybody gets a call! Everybody gets a call! If you've noticed, most of what I've been talking about with planning is really about patronage. It's about offering support. It's about offering guidance. I like this word patronage, not only because I needed a word that began with P, um, and support obviously doesn't, but because that idea of having a patron, someone that is looking out for your well-being, someone that you can go to when you need more resources, someone that is willing to see the vision sort of hidden in the muddled mess. This is a really beautiful concept, and we have to be that person, that patron for our students and their group work. And this is going to mean regular feedback. This is going to mean having periods where we say, okay, give me something so that I can give you feedback before you move on to the next step. I truly believe that some of this feedback is going to have to come in person-to-person -person interactions, whether or not it's meeting with each individual student or meeting with a group. I just feel like if you think about the best practices of coaching, you have to be giving some live, real-time feedback and listening to what they're saying as well as to what they're not saying. So provide opportunities to express concerns, give opportunities to celebrate victories, and above all, be available as a resource so that when they don't know how to make a group dynamic work, or when they don't know where to go to next, or they're maybe just not sure how to have a non-procrastinating timeline of events, be available to them and let them know from the start. My job is to not just give you the content in the lectures and in the discussions. My job is to help you facilitate this group effectively. Players. So let's go back to how I'm a slight control freak when it comes to parties. I actually don't like to have parties where I just invite all of my friends at once. And I know, again, you're probably hoping that I will never invite you to a party. But the reason that I do that is because I feel like certain groups of people will interact better with other groups of people. There is an advantage to putting certain groups of people together and keeping certain groups of people apart. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, thinking about the ways in which the people I know will benefit from interacting or possibly not benefit from interacting with one another. Honestly, 
I've probably spent more time thinking about who I might invite to a party than in previous years when I first started teaching, I put into the people that I put into groups and the students that I, I put together for a semester because I just didn't know. I didn't know that there was something better than just randomizing groups because that's what I had always seen. That's what I had always experienced as a student was that it, it was just sort of this fate. But really, in the same way that we craft teams very intentionally, that we may or may not craft parties very intentionally, that we decide to work with certain people on certain things when we're playing um, out in the real world, we should be as instructors giving that much thought to the groups that we put our students into. How do we do this? Well, I think first there needs to be an acknowledgement that there's nothing really to be gained long-term from just randomly putting people together. Because first off, it's never entirely random, right? There's always like the like, I'll sit over here, best friend, and you sit over there. And then, you know, that way you end up being in a group. Um, it's never quite right as random as it seems. Um, but really, other than just like the like, can you talk to strangers? There's not as much benefit from randomizing the people in a group um, than there is from carefully curating those individuals so that eventually they'll hopefully stop being a group and instead become a team playing together. There are a lot of methods that you can use in order to craft this group. For example, you could choose to sort students by strengths, by personalities, by interests. So one thing that you could do is if your tasks require certain skill sets, find out ahead of time in a quick survey what students have what skills. What are they bringing to the table? And then you can say, okay, well, I have some strong people and I have some people that have never done this before. I'm going to put them together so they can learn from one another. Or I have people that are really good at X and I have three of them and I have three other people that are really good at Y. So I'm going to put the X people together and I'm going to put the Y people together. You could choose to, and this takes a lot of work on your end, but you could choose to have them fill out a calendar or a schedule ahead of time and indicate the times that they are free and then match people up based on when they're actually available. But I think there's some more intriguing ways that we could be thinking about the players, right, that um, fit with some of the theories about play and some of the theories about the types of people that end up playing. There are a number of personality tests that you could have people complete. There's things like the hot tamales, cool cucumber scale, where they get to sort of rank how they react in certain types of situations. Here at Trinity, you could take advantage of the Clifton Strengths and have the students complete that ahead of time. And then you could either pair them with like people or pair them with unlike people so that you're creating a team composed of many different personality types, many different strengths. Um, that would be another option. Or you could have them complete that after you've put them into groups so that they can kind of have a common ground to talk. I want to talk about... Bartle's taxonomy of players, though, because I think that this is a really intriguing way that we could take what we're doing, again, in our playful lives and bring it into the classroom. And that is, is that according to this taxonomy, there are four types of players. There are achievers, 
who are all about points and status. This is roughly 10% of player types. There are explorers who want to see new things and discover new secrets. Again, this is about 10% of, of players. There's socializers, which are the vast majority of players. This is about 80% of people who play. And they experience fun in their games through their interaction with other players. That's what they find valuable. And then, and this is a kind of scary sounding term, but there's the killer. And it's, it's a very valid and important part of the team. It's really only less than 1% of players fall into this category. But they want to win, right? They are highly competitive. Winning is what motivates them. And honestly, they are happiest when not only have they gained points like the achievers, but when they've watched other people sort of fail, right? They're sort of the deviant in the relationship. And if you remember back, Hackman said that you need to have at least one deviant in the group. So you could take this, right? There, there are quizzes that students can take online, that anyone can take online, that will help determine what type of player you are according to this taxonomy. Ask your students to take it. Ask them to figure out where they are and then curate as the instructor the teams that you want. Do you want a team where you have an achiever, an explorer, a socializer, and if possible, a killer? Or do you want a team that's just composed of achievers because they're going to have a same approach to life, they're going to have a same lexicon, they're going to have a same sort of viewpoint? There's not a right or wrong here. But what's important is, is that if we want to build a team of students who are going to be meaningfully engaging in play, we have to take the time to think of the dynamics just as carefully as we would if we were crafting a team of people that we wanted to play with in a book club or on a sports team. Think about diversity. Think about who might feel like they don't have a voice in, in this particular group. Think about all of those things because that's what makes a good team is that you have a group of people that feel comfortable together, that feel safe together, and that can succeed because they haven't been immediately given this barrier of randomization. In episode three, I'm going to talk about practice and the fact that it is so important that we think about practice when it comes to learning in exactly the same ways that we think about practice when it comes to playing. And then I'm going to talk about the purpose of creating group work. Again, if we're going to do it, there has to be a good reason. And I'm going to argue that an intriguing reason might actually be to give them opportunities to safely encounter failure. Please join me for episode three, Turning Group Work into Teamwork, part two. Thank you very much. <laughs>